Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer, Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts for the Digital Workspace inner workings. So welcome, Gerald, onto the Digital Workspace Works podcast. Can you introduce yourself, please? Sure. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I am Gerald McGovern. I'm the Chief Information Officer at Guide Dogs for the Blind. Lovely. And uh, we were talking about um, some of the good bits that that you wanted to keep sort of pre sorry in the pandemic, and now we're going to post pandemic. Do you have some examples of of what you want to keep and what you don't want to keep? So I think we all want to get back to physically seeing people. I think we all know that the, the pandemic has shown us that human contact is really important and we like being with people. But I think it's also shown us that to do really effective work, we don't have to always be together. And I think for companies that have had people across multiple locations, they've known that already. The idea that everyone has to be in the same room to work together, I don't think has been true for a number of years. So what we want to get to is the idea, and especially for guide dogs, we're we're guide dogs, we're not Google, we're not gonna become a fully remote organization. But what we do want to do is keep all the benefits of having that flexibility of working from anywhere, but also making sure that when we do come into our offices, they aren't just there for people to come and sit at a desk, that they are designed for collaboration, they create fantastic meeting spaces. They create fantastic places where people can come together and work together. Mm. So that we are not going to go back to everyone coming into the office five days a week just to sit at a desk. But nor are we going fully remote. The future is a balance between the two. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. I remember when I moved to the UK, having to be in the office five days a week, and I'd be on the, be in the office five days a week, but I'd be on the phone four days of the five days to people in the same building. But no one was meeting face to face anyway, and it was just this mad. You have to be here because it's it's doctrine from the top. Um, I think it's good that we, we as you say, we found a, a medium that says you can do deep work at home, and you can come into the office for workshops and collaboration. And I think it's about making sure that you're always focused on what the outcome of the work is, not where it's taking place. And. Mm. There will be some people, so we look at neurodiversity, there are some people who really thrive in being in an office every day. And there's absolutely no way we're going to say, no, sorry, you can't come in. If people want to come in every day, they can come in every day. But there are some people who thrive when they've got that separation, that space, that ability to, to juggle their personal life more yeah. intensely. And I think as long as we have a person-centered approach and always make sure that it works for the organization, your team, and you as an individual, I don't think you can go wrong. Yeah, no, you're spot on. Um, have you ever read the book People Wear? I have not. It's, a, it's worth a read. I mean, it's, it's a book probably from the 70s or the 80s. Um, and, and they talk a lot about all these concepts around, uh, for example, open plan offices are bad. Um, what you want to have is, is small offices with, with you know three or four people in them, so they can collaborate if they're working on a project or something. Um, but then they're not distracted by everyone else around them, which is what I've you know I find with open plan. I'm sure you do as well. Is that it becomes just noisy, um, 
and then and, uh, uh, distracting uh, in those sort of spaces. Um, there's a couple of other things that come in the room. Though, so that, that, that works as well. It, it, it does. I mean, I remember we did a project in, in uh, Brussels and these guys had never seen people wear headphones at their desks um, because they had little cubicles. And they, got, they, they found it quite um, novel that they had to walk up and, and sort of tap your desk to knock on your door to, to talk to you and you put your headphones up and you, and you chat to them. Um, you know, that's pretty much every floor has them. Uh, everyone has them now because that's, you know, what it is. Um, yeah, interesting. What, what, we've, what we've tried to do at Guide Dogs is create effectively zones or neighborhoods that have different types of space and different ways of working because there, there's some people who do enjoy an open plan environment. There's some people who want to work with an enclosed office and all the bits in between. And I yeah. think as, as, we, as long as we recognize that that everyone is different and there isn't a, a standard way of doing things, then provided we we have enough space and enough flexibility, I think that works for the works for the employee and the works for the employer. Yeah, no, I think you're totally right. How, how big, um, I'm going to say big, I'm not going to say a number of people, but I mean, how many sites do you guys have across the UK? So we have 28 across the UK. Um, we They vary in size um, and they are predominantly canine based. So it's okay. a really interesting change for us. We, we were planning on embarking on a very big capital expenditure program to expand our space because we needed more space for for more dogs because we want to reduce our waiting lists and the way of doing that is get more dogs through the system yeah. and what we've come to the conclusion is that if we make better use of our space so if we take advantage of the fact that people do want that flexibility and that autonomy to work from places other than their nominated office we can still provide that extra canine space, but without the need to buy new buildings or extend buildings. Yeah. So it's a bit of a challenge because obviously being a charity, we've got to make sure that every penny counts and having 28 sites, again, is also a bit of a challenge. It takes a bit of time to, to whiz through, but we're in this fortunate position now. I think you always had companies like Google who were sort of the, the shining beacon of this is how office space should look. Yeah. And actually now companies like Google are saying, well, you can you can work from home and we can now provide that same level of office effective space because we can let people work from home. We can make it so that people are equipped to work from anywhere. So it's it's a real step change for us. Have you um, incentivized incentivized staff with with um, sort of uh, what's the word um, giving them money to to set their office up by the right desk, right the right, by the right chair, all that kind of stuff, or was it people just set set themselves up? So it's a balance. So we have people who are on home based contracts, so they. Yeah they are effectively treated as that is their place of work. What we then have is a balance for everyone else where it's a, it's a hybrid. So they have a nominated office. And I think the we don't have an expectation that, that people come in a set number of days each week, but yeah. we do have an expectation that we will see people in the office because yeah. there's there's certain things that I, I think as we've shown with the pandemic, some things have been really great other bits it's so much easier and quicker when you're face to face yeah. so 
it's that it's it's not an expectation, but it's a uh, we, we want to see you. We we know it's a great place to be, and we know it's good to see people. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Um, we were talking also that you worked on the Soccer World Cup um, back here in South Africa. Um, how do you, how has that changed in the last ten years from what you dealt with then to to what you've seen now with the Euros and and that sort of thing? So it's really interesting. So I, I was very fortunate. I spent uh, eight years working at Getty Images and uh, uh, UEFA, and yeah. the evolution of events has been has been fascinating. So so when I started, the the standard way of sending photos was you bought an ISDN line from the organisers, you plugged it into your laptop, and we sent photos very slowly. Yeah. And there's been a progressive evolution in technology. So if we look at the Beijing Olympics, we got together with our colleagues at AP, Reuters, and the other big international news agencies. And we bought leased lines between all the venues. And we put our own switches and our own networking equipment within each venue. Yeah. And then you move on to something like South Africa, where the organizing committee did it for us. And then 2012, it was more of a hybrid where we were using some of the organizing committee's equipment, some of our own equipment. But if we now look at Tokyo, it's now in the Olympic Games host city contract that this network has to be provided for the international press agencies to to send imagery. So the, the journey has been absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I think the, the biggest challenge has, has always been how do you plan so far ahead and make a guess on what technology is going to be? So yeah. we started planning London 2012 just after Twitter was first launched. So how do you even make a guess knowing that what technology is going to look like six years down the line? It's, yeah. it's, a, very, it's a very interesting call to make. Yeah, and I can imagine. I mean, you know, when you say that, you know, I can't even think how old Twitter is, but it's it's not it's not even twelve years old. It's ten years old. I think. I think two thousand and six is when it came out. Okay, so fifteen years old, give or take. Sure, that's crazy. Yeah, because I mean, my, my so my wife worked on the soccer world cup and she worked on London Olympics, um, and she, and she found it very different in the two different approaches. So so FIFA had obviously its way of doing things, and the Olympics had their way of doing things. Um, and those those different approaches created different gaps um, in in getting things ready. And, and I mean, one of the things she struggled with was uh, getting the town councils to all agree on on the operational stuff. Like uh, there was a, there was a specific point between Merton, Wimbledon, and um, somewhere else. It was basically a square meter. Um, wasn't part of any of the councils, um, so no one would take ownership for the square meter. And they needed to put a placard on that square meter, and she couldn't get anyone to agree that they would support it. So it was just, you know, funny how those sort of little things sort of slowed things down drastically. Uh, it's it's really funny the difference between something like a World Cup and something like the Olympics, where I'm trying to think of a, a suitable analogy, but the the Olympics is a is a very big but a very slow juggernaut. Yeah comes over a very long period of time, has two and a half weeks with a competition every day, pretty much filling the entire day. Yeah. Whereas football is, it has higher viewing figures and it's it's way more intense for a short period of time, but it still takes an awful lot of effort to get that preparation ready. And it's, yeah. it's a very, 
It's a very interesting difference, but the I think the biggest thing from working in events that I ever learned was the, the idea that you just have to be ready. You can't say to a sane bolt, sorry, do you mind running the 100 metres again? Because our, our systems are offline. It, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't work that way. And you, you have to have a plan A, but also a plan B and a plan C. Because if, if you don't send that photo, you can guarantee your competitors will and someone else will, will use that photo instead of using yours. And if, yeah. if you've got the world's best photo, it means nothing if it's sitting on a camera. It has to be sitting in the hands of people who need to use it. Yeah, you spot on. I, mean, I remember my wife going through stuff where she's like, we're not even ready for this. And I'm like, well, people are coming to play tennis today, so you're going to have to be ready. Um, the rest of the world won't know you're not ready. So, you know, just carry on. Um, so, so Guide Dog Association, just going back to that for a second. So, uh, I mean, my, my sister's involved with Guide Dogs in, in, um, in Malta. Um, do, do you guys do anything with other associations outside of the UK and, and do you use technology to, to try and help with training or anything like that? So there's a very healthy network of fellow guide dogs uh, organizations across the across the world and we come together at various points and we try and share data and sort of techniques on on how we train, how we how we breed and, and how we operate. In fact, I was just talking to Guide Dogs Australia have just appointed a new um, a new CIO, and I had a good conversation with them talking through what we're doing at Guide Dogs, what we're planning digitally, and I think that's that for me. Sort of extending it further, that's one of the best things about working in the the charity sector, the not for profit sector. Yeah. That for for Guide Dogs to win, another charity doesn't have to lose. The, the yeah. reason why someone would give to guide dogs and I, I was very fortunate I've worked at Great Ormond Street before working at um, guide dogs and the people who give to Great Ormond Street will give for very different reasons for giving to guide dogs and mm. because of that it's not like Coca-Cola versus Pepsi Nike yeah. versus Adidas so it means that people can come together and, and we can share ideas and we can share information because we're not competitors in the truest sense yeah, no, I can understand that. And and, and you've always sort of tried to stay in the altruistic um, businesses. So you're ma- you're making me sound far better than I am saying altruistic. Well, um, <laughs> I I think it's I've been lucky through my career that I've worked in various different places. Some of it through planning, some of it through serendipity. Um, yeah. And I think I've been very lucky that the the two uh, not for profit companies I've worked for have been two of the best well-known charities in the UK. So I'm very lucky in that sense, but equally, I, I very much enjoy working in the commercial sector as well. So it's, it's nice to have a mix. No, I, I mean, uh, it's one of the reasons why I joined Hilo was it was much more, uh, we weren't saving people money, we were saving lives, which is, which makes you feel good at the end of the week. Um, there was a question I want to ask you, which was, when when you guys are doing your your training and stuff, and obviously dealing with people that are, are blind or you know potentially blind and deaf, do you, do you use anything there to help them from a training point of view? So um, I'm thinking about uh, you know spins of of uh, AR or, or virtual reality or or something like that, or is that still coming down the pipe? So it is coming down the pipe a little bit. Um, we. 
the training is is very much it's about creating a partnership between a a a dog and the and the guide dog owner so it's it is very much a, a hands-on almost analog way of doing it i yeah. think our responsibility sitting in technology is to make sure that the point where someone is being placed together with a dog all the steps that lead up to that are as efficient as possible. So yeah. where digital does play a important role is, and we've seen this because of the pandemic, that we can now talk to people over Zoom. We can do things like that, whereas before it was very much, let's do a face-to-face consultation. Yeah. And while sometimes that's better and sometimes that is more appropriate, there are times when it's more convenient for people to go, okay, let's just do it over Zoom because it's easier for them. Yeah. So I, I'm sure. So we, we do work with Microsoft on various products such as uh, Seeing AI, Soundscape, and they are effectively products that that really help those who are visually impaired. But the actual the, the core the core mobility side, so creating that guide door partnerships is is, and I think will remain for some time a, a very analog and traditional process. Oh, yeah, like I, I couldn't expect that to work in other way to be honest. But I was just wondering, um, and you probably asked the question: if someone's struggling with their dog and they two hundred miles away, you, they don't necessarily have to now come back, or you have to send someone out there two hundred miles. Exactly, and it's it's bizarre. So obviously, we we had that technology before. It's not as if Zoom only existed because of the pandemic, but I think it's been a mindset shift that before it was very much, well, we will come out to you. This is a really personalized service. Well, actually talking to someone over a video link is just as personalized and actually may be better for them because I know this is a strange example, but I've got two children and parents evening now for us is done over Teams. Now that's the greatest thing in the world because it means we don't have to rush back from work. We can both attend because normally we couldn't because of childcare and various things. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those, I don't think we would have had the idea of teams, parents evenings if it hadn't been because of the pandemic, but there was yeah. no technological reason why it couldn't happen. Yeah, no, and, and that was one of the, I mean, when I moved to the UK, we were building virtual machines and, and video conferencing on the platform. So we could do work from anywhere, any device, any time, but we weren't allowed to use it outside of the bank. So it's like, why, why build all this stuff if you can't use it from home or whatever it is now? You know, fast forward 10, 10 years, when the pandemic started, started, you know, guys are flicking the switch saying, well, just work from home today because you can still log into your virtual machine. Absolutely. And just carry on. Um, so, I'm, you know, in a sense, and I know a lot of people have died and, and been you know, negatively impacted by the pandemic. I'm glad that sort of level has raised everyone up to the same place that the, the Zoom teams, Cisco teams, whatever it is, are now almost verbs that everyone can use as opposed to just the techies or, or the corporates. Yes, very much so. And it's it's one of the things, thankfully, we started before the pandemic that the idea was we always designed everything to be used from anywhere. Because yeah. if you can use it from anywhere, you can definitely use it in the office. Whereas yeah. a, lot, a lot of traditional IT systems have always been based around, well, it might, let's design it to work in the office and we'll think about it working outside of the office later. And yeah. very rarely does that work. And, and have you had to um, worry about sort of information security as well, being that you've got the 28 sites and 
um, you got people, you know, working with animals and, and you know, personal information. So, thankfully, dogs don't come under GDPR, so that's all. That's always helpful. Yeah. Um, but you're right; information security is always one of our our big priorities, and we are in the middle of effectively centralizing all of our data. We've created a, a project called Project One, which is about having that that one source of data, that that one source of the truth. And at the moment, we have. We have data sitting all over the place. We have it that it's in, we have two different CRM systems. Wow. We have Excel spreadsheets that obviously every organization in the world has. Um, but we have a lot of data that sits in people's heads, which again is is to be expected with an organization that's 90 years old and has developed over time. And what we want to do with with Project One is effectively take the the implicit information that exists around guide dogs and make it really explicit and really usable because once it's all in one place, everyone can start getting insights from it. But also yeah. it makes the idea of information security much easier. But certainly through the pandemic, we've been reinforcing messages that now you are more away from the office. Please make sure that your computer is is either locked when you go away or you're always aware where it is. And I think oh. it's just, it's about education because I think you can, you can put all the tools and procedures in place, but nearly all the time where you have information security breaches, it, it's a human element that's failed. And that's, that's the bit you need to reinforce. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly it. The, the human, I'm listening to a podcast at the moment called um, the eighth layer. Uh, and that's the human layer. Um, and it's all those things. It's it's preying on people that, that are, I don't want to say weak because that's not fair, but it's susceptible to a, to a con. Um, and and the cons are getting really good. Yeah. That's, that's the problem. As, as technology gets better, the, the cons get better. So it's we need to make sure that we've got all the monitoring in place. And it, it's why security is never just about one thing. It's, as you say, the, I think that eighth layer thing is, is a good way of it describing it because it it has to be multiple layers yeah and i mean i, I got caught yesterday almost with, with the paypal thing that came through and i just bought something on paypal and it just was the right timing of actually oh maybe this maybe i've had a failed transaction and i almost logged in and i was like hang on hang on let me just check this so it, it can happen to anyone um and i think that there's a level of people should talk about it not because they want to feel um inf you know they, they shouldn't feel in fear because they're caught they should share it because, you know, it, it warns everyone else that this can happen to anyone. Absolutely. So, cool. Um, and, and sort of going around with, with um, I mean, do you travel now to go to 28 sites or do you do you have a, you just work from home all the time and, and that's that's your new life? Uh, a bit of both. Um, I've been trying to keep travel to a minimum and we've been trying to make it so that, um, to keep our site safe, unless someone needs to be there, um, then we not actively discourage, but there needs to be a reason why someone needs to go on site. Um, yeah. I think as well, so we, we've done things where we now do all staff calls over, over teams. And I think the accessibility of people to the rest of the organization, I think is now greater because of the pandemic. So yes, I've met people through going to all the different sites, but I've probably met visually more people through Teams because it's much easier. And before yeah. we were using just Skype with just audio and it's 
it's it's not the same. It's obviously it's much better if you meet people physically, but the next best thing is to meet them virtually via video conference. Yeah, I always found even before the pandemic that it was once you met someone face to face, then you can do as many video conferences as you like because you've already built that bit of trust. Um, student that way around always feels like you, you you're not quite connecting. Um, so I think you've you got to find a bit of bit of a balance there. It's why we, we still want people to come into the offices. It's why it's so important that you have that physical connection. But, you know, with 28 sites across the UK and sites all the way from uh, Southampton up to uh, Forfar in Scotland, you're, you're not going to be able to get to every site. It's just not going to happen. No. So the next best thing is, is to be able to meet people virtually. And, and the dogs, are they tracked using uh, chips? So you know where they are and who they're with? Um, so they have chips in terms of, so very similar to uh, what a normal pet dog would have. So if a dog was to get lost, they are, they are microchipped. We don't have chips that track in the same way, let's say like a GPS tracker. Yeah. Um, it's something we've looked at before. So there, there are products that are very similar to fitness trackers that give an idea of um, what dogs do. But we found that the data they gathered all it told us was they run about a bit. There was no, there wasn't enough useful insight. And yeah. maybe as the technology improves and in the same way that you look at version one of the Apple Watch, what it could tell you, and you look at version six now and it, it does way more, it could be that as time goes on, they're able to deduce more more data. But but right now, we we pretty much know where our dogs are there. They're, they're with, they're with their, their guide dog owners. Yeah, because what I was thinking about is, is if you've got a dog with an owner and the owner falls over or something, and you know, almost as a, with Apple Watch, you'd have the panic button um, that would kick off. If there was some link back to you guys as, as a support framework or, or that's, if that's not what you guys do. But. So, so generally, in terms of if that scenario were to happen, um, so as well as a guide dog being for mobility, one of the, the biggest step changes for people who are visually impaired is a smartphone. So um, particularly if you look at Apple, Apple have, it's almost like a, another operating system that exists within iOS that is purely for people who are visually impaired. It is, it's phenomenal. So it's, it's something I, so before working at guide dogs, I had absolutely no idea about it, but yeah. you can see that the time, effort and love that Apple have invested to, to really make it so someone who is visually impaired can can fully interact with an iPhone. And the level of mobility a guide dog plus an iPhone provides someone is, is fairly unparalleled. So in, in that scenario, if that were to happen, it is almost certain that whether it's an iPhone or an Android, the um, the guide dog owner would have their would have their device with them. I have no idea that there was a I mean you, you assume there's an accessibility capability within the phones. But uh, I never really thought it was a whole separate um, entity. It's, so it, it changes how you use the phone. So if, if you can imagine that, imagine you've got your, your screen of apps on the front page. Yep. So as you press each app or each button, it audibly tells you what that is. Okay. So it then for you to activate that application is not a single touch, it's a double touch. So it changes effectively how iOS works, but there's so much 
detail put into it so that it could almost be a separate operating system. They've, they, it's something that there's a story that it started where someone from Apple was, was talking to someone who was visually impaired and that person explained it would be really great if I were able to use this, this handset. And Apple just absolutely embraced it. And it's, it's really fantastic what they do. Oh, cool. I actually want to give that a play now and see what it's like. Because um, I use the I use the black and white contrast on it quite a lot, just because the red sort of triggers you to keep checking your phone. But uh, I want to play with all the other stuff now. Um, is there anything else you want to share? Any other sort of war stories? I suppose not war story, but related to to Apple, one of the exciting things we're doing right now, which is launching next week, is we are doing a program called Tech for All, okay. which is we are providing every visually impaired child in the UK with either an iPhone or an iPad, because the, oh, wow. the research shows that it is one of the, the biggest single leaps in terms of effectively creating that level playing field in the way that children communicate with their peers, because... Yeah most children have an iPhone or an iPad and the ability to communicate in the same way that all of their peers are and also be able to use for learning is um, we feel that that would make a massive difference to to visually impaired children in the UK. And are those being donated? Are you guys buying them? How how are you doing the devices? So we are funding that. We've done um, a deal with uh, BTEE to to supply those we're also working with apple in terms of training on how to get the best out of those devices um and we also provide uh, a data plan for that as well um so it's about it's about mobility it's about having that that level playing field so that um visually impaired children can really interact with the rest of the world wow that's amazing have you um synced up with freddie quark at all I have not. So he's trying to connect all these things together. So your initiative with any other initiative, et cetera, it's probably worth, um, he's on one of our groups, I think. Um, I can always introduce you if you, if you don't know him. That'd be fantastic. Uh, but, but it's, it's you know, what we, we've talked about is, so everyone needs to be digitally included, but it's, it's a bit more than just giving or donating a whole bunch of devices. Someone has to set the devices up, someone has to do the training, someone has to make sure those devices will, will last. Um, and there's all these different initiatives. So, so the first part is connecting them all together, so joining the dots. But then the second part is, is people that are willing to, to invest their time to help, but they don't have a way to, to get involved. So they don't do anything. So that's the sort of second part to this. Um, so it might just be good if, if um, you know, you two get connected and then uh, see if there's some some overlap to help each other. No, that, that sounds great. And I, it's, a, it's a really good point that we were very determined on this program that it's not just a case of here's an iPad away you go. It, yeah. It's about making sure that people get the absolute most out of that piece of technology because it's, it's wonderful. Like I can think back to... So again, going down memory lane, I remember when I I got one of the first iPads, I was in America at the time, yeah. and I had people coming up to me, just chatting randomly going, show me what this is. And yeah. it really is, it's you know, 10 years on from that now, it is now ubiquitous and it's just seen as, uh, as something that everyone has. But not everyone does have it and not everyone knows how to use it. And it's, it's part of 
I think everyone who does know how to use those devices and has access to them has a responsibility to make sure that the next generation carries on. We don't lose this this digital knowledge. Yeah, no, you're spot on. Um, I mean, I think some people have multiple devices, and um, you know, I think I think Apple's approach to design really enables anyone to just pick it up intuitively. Uh, I haven't spent much time with Android, so I can't say the same there. But um, you know, I always get a good feeling when I'm using a product from Apple with another product from Apple because it just works. Um, which which is one of the things that I find other vendors don't do well, um, which makes it very frustrating. Um, so saying all of that, my main laptop's a Microsoft Surface. So, but there you uh, go. Yeah, look, we've, we've got to have them. Unfortunately, I mean, you know, I've got a Windows device next to me, but I don't use it as much. Um, purely because I, I found it very frustrating. You know, Windows 10, uh, we don't have to beat up Microsoft yet. Uh, I think their plan is really to provide Windows hosted. Um, and what you got on your personal device doesn't really matter because um, you're connected to a hosted machine and do your work there. I must admit, I'm. whilst I, I grew up with Macs and my first ever computer was a Mac, I, yeah, this is going to... Uh, sound strange I, I actually prefer windows to mac so i i'm very happy using a surface but i think that's that's the best thing now particularly with cloud technologies that as you say it doesn't really matter you can yeah. every, everyone can access the apps are still available and that, yeah. that's the main point if you go back 15 years ago microsoft strategy was we have to lock you in you have to use all of our software <laughs> now microsoft don't care especially yep. with their resort platform, they're going to be making money whether you're using their devices or software. No, exactly. Exactly. And uh, I think a lot of the pain that you get with the Windows build, I mean, you're on a Surface, so you probably don't have that pain as much. All those variables go away because it's hosted. Um, you know, whereas you, when you try and get every vendor to use the right drivers and all that kind of stuff, that's where the pain comes in. Um, but it's interesting, nonetheless. What are your thoughts on Windows 11? Are you excited to upgrade? So I am, <laughs> with trepidation, I installed the, the beta. Um, I should hasten to say, not on my work machine. Um, <laughs> I, it seems fine. It's it's probably more a Windows 10 service pack one type affair. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it it's one of those, yeah, whether we like it or not, Microsoft have a massive market share and will be around for a very, very long time. So um, I think Windows 11 is just the natural evolution. Although I'm fairly sure they said when Windows 10 launched that Windows 10 was going to be the last ever version of Windows. But here we are with Windows 11. Yeah, I think that was someone in the product team, but it wasn't really an official statement. So it's almost been backtracked completely. Um, yeah, I think that it was no, no complaints to Windows 10 and no complaints to Windows 11. Yeah, I think the um, I mean I've always preferred Windows 7. I always thought that was the, probably their best, the best OS. Um, I found 10 to be quite clunky, um, but I think if they carried on with Windows 10 as an evergreen solution and that actually worked, then it probably would have been the last one because it would have just morphed over time. Um, but I think with the pandemic and a few other things, I've had to backpedal on that to have a new platform, which is really lipstick on a pig, but so be it. If it works, it works. Well, that's the main thing. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's got to have the least amount of friction possible um, for a user to do their job. 
uh, or do whatever they want to do on the machine. Um, so as you said, as long as it works, it works. So great. Um, is there anything else you want to cover or do you want to sign off there? I, I think that has been quite fun. Perfect. Great. Well, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to get in contact? Uh, great question. Uh, probably on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Or, good. Yeah, yeah, LinkedIn's the easiest. Super. We'll put that in the in the show notes then. Or just shout that shout really loudly. <laughs> Super. Well, thanks very much for coming on. Um, it was great chatting with you. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.